0: Well, those are about the perfect songs, I think, for the message that we're going to look at today, because there's a sense in which what this message is going to be asking you to do is, is to take the God of the universe, to take Christ and his kingdom, and then to measure absolutely everything that you have and absolutely everything that you are and frankly, absolutely everything else against him, against what he's up to, against his plans and purposes in this world and in your world. Make the comparison because reason alone causes you to go, oh, yeah, God and his kingdom is here. And then like nothing else is even on the same page. So then the whole of my life belongs to him. And it's to be in service to Him. If you were with us last week as we continued our study of this book of 1 Corinthians, it was kind of an invasive message, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we kind of like watched as Paul, figuratively speaking, of course, kind of entered into our lives almost like you would enter into a home. And he didn't leave any room untouched. Like he walked through the front door and then he walked through every other door and he went into every closet and he went underneath the crawl space and he went through the attic and he went through the medicine cabinets. He opened every box, everything. He gathered up all that we have and he gathered up all that we are. And then again, figuratively speaking, it's as though he placed it on a big table before us and sat down next to us and said, all right, let's talk about all of this. Here's the first thing you need to know about all of this. It all came from God. It's the gift of God to you. Enjoy it. Be blessed by it. But here's the other thing you need to know. There's something more important than all of this. It's more important than everything that you have. It's more important than everything that you are. It's incalculably more important. It's unfathomably more important. And what the more important thing is, is Christ and his kingdom. It's his gospel mission in this world of taking this message of an eternal, and that's what makes it so different, salvation to the whole of this world, to every people group in this world, beginning with our homes, and then offices, and then communities, and neighborhoods, and city, and so forth, and emanating out from here. So then, Paul says, as he chatted with us last week, look, here's the deal. Enjoy it all, but When, not if, but when one of these things that you have or one of these things that you are comes between you and your ability to fully engage in that mission, okay, well then here's what you must do. You must do away with it. You must sacrifice it. You must subordinate it to the ultimate love, which is Christ and His kingdom. And so, as we talked about last week, that changes our operative question in life from the operative question that everyone in the world, all of us consciously and subconsciously ask of every person, of every opportunity, of every relationship, of everything, which is what? Because we all do it. It's what's best for me. So, how is this going to affect me? What is this going to cost me? What is this going to require of me? How am I going to gain from this? That's how we operate. It's how we evaluate everything. Paul's coming to us last week and going, What are you talking about? There is no you. You've been completely absorbed by Christ. You've been completely enveloped in the gospel. You don't belong to you anymore. You've been bought with the price of the blood of His Son. Therefore, your life is not yours. It's His. And the question is never, for a follower of Jesus, what's best for me? The question is, what's best for Him? What's best for His mission? What's best for His gospel? And that's what we unpacked last week. And one of the other things, the final thing that Paul came to us with, was this marvelous realization that hey, you know, because our God is an eternal God and because His plans and purposes for us extend way beyond the 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 or 90, let's go 120. I mean, we're just getting crazy, right? Years that maybe we'll get in this life and that next to eternity is what? Literally almost nothing. And because He has promised that as we surrender our lives to him as we lead the spirit-led lives of sacrifice and joy that he dials up for us and we make those hard decisions and say you know what Christ and his kingdom more important than this and so with a shaking hand i will let it go again and again and again and again and again and again Our Lord will reward us for all of eternity for the very sacrifices that he himself inspires us to make and brings to us as opportunities for forever because our lives go on for forever as opposed to 50, 80, 60, 70, 35, 120 years man, what's best for the gospel, what's best for Christ, what's best for his kingdom is also in the end. And that's the way we need to look at things. What's best for me and what's best for you? It works out in the end like for forever. You're not going to be going, man, I wish I had held on to that. You'll be going. Thank the Lord that I didn't, that I didn't. And it's the end that Paul's focused on. And actually, that's where we ended the message last week. So let me read to you the last verse that we looked at after Paul called us to join him in this life of sacrifice. He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23, last verse we looked at. He calls attention to himself and says, all right, I'm going to use myself as the example. I do it all. Meaning, I willingly sacrifice all when necessary. For what? Because here it is, for the sake of the gospel. But to what end? What is the prize that Paul is running the race of faith in such a way as to obtain or fighting the fight of faith those are the metaphors that he's going to use in a second strategically in order to get what is it he tells us he says that i may share with them and you got to stop and say well who are the them <laughs> who are they well an example of them is these people that he's writing to here and, and the people that he writes to in ephesus and all of the people and all of these churches that god by the power of his spirit through this incredibly surrendered man Raised up in his day, the them that he has in mind are all of the people that God, in some way, shape, or form, through his serving, through his preaching, through his giving, through his sacrifices, through whatever it is that he did to encourage people to faith in Jesus, in fact, come to faith in Jesus by the grace of God, and with whom he will enjoy what? Eternity. That's what he's looking toward. He says, that I may share with them in its eternal blessings, meaning the eternal blessings of the gospel. In other words, Paul is coming to us and he says, let me tell you what the prize is for me, but not just for me, for you. He says, I'm looking ahead, you see, and I'm looking ahead to a new heavens and to a new earth. That's the gift of God to us. That's where we're going. A place that is very much unlike this earth. No sorrow, no pain, no depression, no tears of pain or sorrow, no death, no betrayal. No injustice, no oppression, no sickness, no disease, none of the things that afflict us. And more than that, even more wonderfully than that in some sense, a world in which we will see how it is that God redeems, really makes good, brings good out of all of our failures, all of our issues, all of our tragedy, all of the things that we've suffered and inflicted even upon others. He's going to take everything and turn it inside out entirely. And for forever we will praise Him for that. So He's saying this is an unimaginably awesome place. That's the prize. I get to share that with Jesus, but here's really cool. I also get to share it with all of these people that God in some way, shape, or form, used me to help encourage or help bring to faith in Jesus and who through faith in Jesus gain that same eternal inheritance. Paul's going, my goodness, how can I be consumed with anything in this world when I can obtain that? So line that up next to all the other prizes. Place that alongside all the other loves and it It just it fades. He says, "Look, whether you realize it or not, that's the prize, and not just for me, Paul, but but for every believer in Jesus. Even if you don't embrace it, that's what it is." And so, then with that prize in mind, here's what he's going to say to us today. Still seated, still talking, same conversation. He's going to say, "All right, so here's the deal. Here's what it takes to obtain the prize. It takes spirit enabled self control, right priority." And Spirit-enabled self-control. In other words, it takes the Spirit-given ability to prioritize Christ and His kingdom above absolutely everything else and to keep Him there, meaning and requiring that we need the Spirit to enable us to have the self-control necessary to put down our other passions, to put down our other loves, to set aside and to sacrifice when necessary, and it isn't always, these other prizes that we chase in this world. So it's, prioritize love and it's spirit empowered self-control that enables us to live in light of the priority of Christ and his kingdom above everything so we pick up our study today first Corinthians 9 and the very next verse verse 24 where Paul compares our pursuit of this prize to that of an athlete and we can all relate to this we've all seen it we've all looked at these people and gone Wow what sacrifice He says this, he says, do you not know that in a race, so he's imagining runners, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. And since it's the prize that he wants and he wants us to have, he encourages us by saying, so run like those runners in that race so that you may obtain the prize. But then he tells us what that requires. He says, every athlete exercises, here it is, self-control. And in how many things? Because this is what we revere about them. It's their sacrifice. It's their discipline. It's their diligence. It's their focus that is unswerving. They never eat a french fry, okay? They don't drive through McDonald's. And I love McDonald's fries, so. Clearly God made me too big and fast to be a professional athlete. Every athlete exercises self-control in how many things? in all things. Passions for food, sacrificed. Passions for drink, sacrificed. Passions to sleep in instead of getting up to work out, sacrificed. Passions to sit on the couch, not going to lie, watch the Lord of the Rings for three and a half hours and eat chocolate ice cream. They have to sacrifice that. I don't. But you get the point. You get the point. Look, here's the deal. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, but to what end to gain what kind of a prize? Here's what they're sacrificing all of that for. Are you ready? Because here it is. True for them back then, true today too. They do it in order to receive a perishable wreath. In their case, literally, like that's what they got. That was the award. I think I told you at the beginning of the study that one of the things that Corinth was famous for is what was called the Isthmian Games. It was a huge athletic event. They held it every other year, second only to the Olympics in its stature in terms of athletics. And those who won the race, if you will, or the boxing match, which is the other metaphor that he'll use here in a second, literally, no kidding, got a wreath that they wore on their head. Are you ready? Because this is awesome. Made of celery. I'm not kidding. Celery, like with all of its you know, delicate little leaves, like the commentator that I was reading this week said he's pretty sure that by the time the race was over and they made it to the podium and sang the national anthem or whatever, and finally were crowned with their crown of celery, that the leaves on the celery would already have begun to wilt. Think about that. And compare it to every prize that this world has to offer. Every crown that you're running for or have ever run for. Every award or honor that you've ever gained. Not to diminish those things, but think about it. What are all of those plaques going to be someday? What are all of those honors going to be someday? What are all of those awards going to be someday? What are all of those trophies that you still have from like middle school little league going to be someday? What are they now? They're in a box in the attic. And so will all of these other things be what they will be as honoring as they may be in this life are things that our kids go through after we die and throw away. What are they going to pass that on to their children? Really? I mean, are they? And then they're going to pass it on to their children and then they're going to no, it's over. It's a crown of salary, comparatively speaking. Paul says, my goodness, Look at the discipline of these people, of the sacrifice of these people, of all that they set aside to get a crown of celery. And whatever fading glory goes with it. Good grief, man. That's not what we're running for. I hope. And that's kind of the point. He says, we who exercise this spirit-empowered self-control necessary to fully participate in Christ's gospel mission to this world will receive what for that? An imperishable prize, the obvious point then being, so how much more motivated should we be than these people that we stand in awe of when we consider all of the sacrifices they make to get the crown of celery? And so here again, using himself as an Example. Paul says, so then I at least do not run aimlessly, but I run with a purpose, and my purpose is to obtain the prize. He's saying, I'm like those athletes. I make these sacrifices. I am ruthlessly focused on the goal. And I do not box, he now says, changing the metaphor, as one who beats the air. He's saying, as one who just kind of swings his fists aimlessly as if the goal isn't to knock out his opponent. No, I aim my punches and then he says but i discipline my body now what is that it's his passions it's his appetites it's his desires it's his agendas it's all of the other crowns it's all of the other prizes it's all of the other lives i discipline my body he says and i keep it here it is under control lest after preaching to others i myself should fi- should be disqualified lest after preaching to others about all of this stuff i'll get to the end and realize that I have failed to make the Spirit-empowered sacrifices necessary to fully obtain the goal that I'm holding before you, which is exactly what he's calling these guys to do, to make those sacrifices. But in what area are they being called to sacrifice? Because if you've been with us for the past few weeks, it's just an ongoing conversation that started in chapter 8 with this whole discussion of food that is offered to idols and then served at the tables of these pagan temples that were all over their city and that served as the restaurant system for their city. So we go out to eat at restaurants. We talked about a few weeks ago, they went out to temples. That's where they ate. The difference being the food they ate there was part of a worship service to the pagan deity. We just, you know, have a burger. I mean, it's different in that sense. But everything that we use restaurants to do today for, they, they used the temples for back then. And so you can understand why these guys wanted to continue to be able to go eat at these at these restaurants slash temples, and Paul came to them in chapter 8, and he said, No, you can't do that. Because of your love for your brothers and sisters. And in chapter 10, which we're about to look into, he says, No again, and for a different reason, because you're participating in a demonic event. No bueno. You cannot do it. And so what he's doing is he's coming to me, and he's coming to you, and he's coming to us with the prize. And he's saying, look, Christ and his kingdom, that's what you're to value above everything and above everyone else. That's it. Everything on the table. Okay, yeah. Christ and his kingdom. And here's the deal. When you're unwilling to sacrifice something you have or something you are, be that eating at a temple or something else, which is how this becomes very relevant for us then here's what you're saying. I love that something more than Christ and his kingdom. And that is a disordered love. And disordered love is sin. That's what Saint Augustine said. He came and he said, oh, you wanna know what sin is? Sin is disordered love. It's loving things out of order. That's it. And the other name for loving things out of order is idolatry. And so what Paul does is he shifts gears here and says, okay, look, if that's what you're doing, if that's what you demand, if that's what you insist upon, then that makes you an idolater. So let me tell you, Paul says, just so like there's no surprises in the end, what happens? What does idolatry bring? It brings death, and as with every other lesson in life, you know, you can learn lessons at your own expense, or you can learn lessons at the expense of other people by looking at their examples. It's a much cheaper way of doing it. So he comes to them and he comes to us and he says, all right, let me give you an example that I'm hoping that you'll learn from. Chapter 10, verse one, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brother. So no surprises, guys. And then he says something very curious. He says that our fathers, why is that curious? Because he's about to refer to Moses and the Israelites, all of them ethnic Jews who were brought out of the nation of Egypt, you know, through the Exodus, and who wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and so forth, but all of them ethnic Jews, and yet he's writing a letter to a church that is almost exclusively ethnically, certainly primarily Gentile, and yet he refers to Moses and the Israelites as your fathers. Inclusion in the nation of Israel is not given by ethnicity. It's given by faith. Everyone with faith in Christ, the true seed of Abraham, is an Israelite indeed. And he's saying these people are your spiritual heritage. So now he calls upon their example and says, learn from them. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, Paul says, were what? Just follow this. We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And if you did your personal worship this week, you probably went, yeah, I don't know know what any of that means. Like what? you know, question mark next to that. What is that? What is Paul doing? He's going to compare these people in this Corinthian church and us too, to the degree that we are idolatrous when we have disordered love, to put it frankly, to these people who came out in the exodus. And he's going, yeah, I realize you don't think that you're a whole lot like them. But you're a whole lot like them. You're more like them than you think. So, all right, you people in the Corinthian church, or maybe in this church today, have experienced the presence of God by means of his Holy Spirit in worship and worshiping and gifts and in all kinds of other things. Yeah, all right, well, these guys experienced his presence in a literal cloud that they followed around in the wilderness by day and a pillar of fire by night, so top that. You guys have been baptized. They experienced a baptism of sorts too. You guys eat a supernatural food. You come to the table of the Lord and it's representative of Jesus. Did not they? He's like, look, don't think that you're all that different from these folks. Made of the same clay. Listen, they had all the same, in many ways, spiritual advantages. They saw the Red Sea parted, so... You know, I think that was probably an impressive and memorable kind of a moment. And nevertheless, Paul continues, with most of them, and that is a major understatement, with all but two of them, God was not pleased, for they were what? Overthrown in the wilderness. The word, mean, the word overthrown means they were laid low, they were put to death. That's it, and that's the story. And I want you to think about that, because it's estimated that about two million Israelites That was the generation that left Egypt and then wandered around for 40 years and all of them but two died. Only two got the prize of the promised land. That's it. 40 years. Now, they had kids and their kids went in, but no, no, no. Two million left. Two million minus two died and wandered around for 40 years knowing that all that everybody was waiting for was for them to die. How about that? That's 137 people a day. These guys were a walking graveyard. And Paul's jumping up and down and going, do you know why that is? Because they were idolatrous. He's saying, guys, idolatry brings death with it and of all kinds. And look, you can learn that for yourself. But he's going, it's an expensive lesson. So let me spare you this expense of having to learn it for yourself. Just pay attention, he says in verse 6. Now these things, this 40 years of death, took place as examples for us. And here's why. So that we might not desire evil as they did. Now I want you to hear that for a minute. What is the evil that they desired. What is it a reflection of? Disordered love. Valuing and trusting in things more than Christ and his kingdom. He doesn't say, ah, it's not such a good thing. He's like, no, 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 no. That's an evil thing. Wow. So then he continues and he says, so do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he starts giving all kinds of examples. And he does it in a way that's so uniquely tied to what these Corinthians are experiencing in Corinth. He says, the people sat down to do what? As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, just like these Corinthians were doing at the pagan temples. And that was not lost on them as they read this. And then they rose up to play these people out in the, in the wilderness. That's a euphemism for sexual immorality, which, by the way, was tied. It was a regular practice in these pagan temples in Corinth too. He's saying, look, I know what's involved in all of this. And he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And now it's just stories of death. And 23,000 fell dead in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And as some of you are with your idolatry, he's saying, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did against Moses. And he's saying to these guys in Corinth, and as some of you were doing against me they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things he says again happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, because you know he's he's experienced the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, or he's been baptized, or he's taken communion, and he's part of a community of faith, and all of that. He says, Look, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls, for no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's saying, You are made of the same clay as those people who made that mistake and who wandered around dying for 40 years. Don't think it can't happen to you. Indeed, recognize that, good grief, you know, I'm subject to the same kinds of weaknesses. Confess that because we need a supernatural power not to do these kinds of things. A spirit-enabled self-control. And then he gives us hope. He adds and says, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape, the way of escape, so that you may be able to endure it. So look for it. You may find it in the face of somebody sitting with you or some other believer that you need to walk with you for a while. Some group, perhaps. And then he says, therefore, my beloved, don't walk, but run, flee from idolatry. And here's why. Because loving things out of order brings death. And we know this. We know this. We prove it. It happens. I mean, if you love work or money or any of those kinds of things, a hobby, you know, whatever, more than you do, you know, like your family or your ability to spend time with it, there's going to be kinds of death that result from that. It's a disordered love, isn't it? We know that. I mean, if you love food and drink more than your health, hey, guess what? And it's not going to be a surprise, right? All of these things happen. Loving things out of order brings death. So Paul says, listen, don't do that, okay? Flee from idolatry. And then he spends the next nine verses explaining to them why it is in fact the case that eating at these pagan temples is an expression of idolatry which begs the question then of well then what's idolatry for us because we have restaurants right i mean we don't go to pagan temples to eat so what is it and i think the answer to that is very simple conceptually it's anything that we prioritize above christ and his kingdom above his gospel mission whatever that is that's disordered love in our lives is idolatry and so having made his case then that eating at these temples is in fact idolatrous, Paul continues his discussion of our need for the spirit-empowered self-control necessary to rightly prioritize our great love, which is Christ and his kingdom, and then to control all of our passions and sacrifice all of our desires and agendas and whatever else needs to be laid down in order for us to live accordingly. He continues in verse 23 and says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, meaning helpful for the spread of the gospel. So then what do you need in order to do that, which is helpful because I'm not going to lie, I don't always feel helpful. I don't always want to be helpful. Sometimes I'm kind of helpfuled out. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've hit my helpful quotient for the day, for the week, for the year, for the decade. And I've got nothing left to give. So what do you need to be helpful? Properly ordered love and the spirit-empowered self-control necessary to live accordingly. To be filled that you might give. To be filled that you might give. He just keeps going. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Build up for the gospel. Well, maybe you're tired of building, you know? I mean, maybe you don't want to build. Maybe it's going to be costly for you to build in this particular person. Maybe it's not going to be... You don't have time. It's not going to... Where do you find that? Like, What do you need in order to do that? Properly ordered love. Christ and His kingdom. It's an opportunity. And the Spirit-empowered self-control to live accordingly. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Why? For the sake of the salvation of his neighbor. That's the idea. It's all missional. It's all kingdom-minded. But what do you need to sacrifice yourself to disadvantage you that you might advantage your neighbor for the sake of the kingdom? Oh, man, you need a properly ordered life. You need spirit-empowered self-control necessary to live accordingly. Paul then goes on and he gives them some very practical guidance in their very unique situation of eating this food that's offered to idols because the reality is not just the food offered at the temples had first been offered to idols, but any meat that you went to the supermarket and bought typically also had been butchered at the temple and previously offered to idols. The difference being, then you took it home and cooked it on the grill and gave thanks to the Lord and enjoyed it with your family. It wasn't some kind of a cultic feast that you engaged in. Or you went to somebody else's house and they did the same thing with you. So there's a very big difference. It's not a worship service that you're eating when you eat it privately. And so he gives them some real practical tips. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and so then all food comes from God, no matter who butchers it, and it's all good. And he continues, and he says, so if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, you want to do it, knock yourself out, you know. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, but... If someone says to you, this has been offered to sacrifice, uh-oh, well then this might, you're eating it, be a problem not for you, but for them. So then what do you do? Because you're hungry, you know, and I like pork sandwiches. And he says, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who has informed you, don't eat it. And for the sake of the conscience, and I do not mean your conscience, but his, this person who pointed it out to you. For why should my liberty, Paul says, be determined by someone else's conscience? You're free to do it, but you're not free to do it if it's going to harm them. That was chapter 8. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. But again, you know, you're hungry. It's a pork sandwich. has coleslaw on it. I mean, it's freaking you out. Like some of you are going, oh man, can you quit with this, you know? Sweet potato fries. I can't wait for lunch. But what does it take for you to sacrifice your appetites? It's getting kind of repetitive at this point. Sort of the point. Properly ordered love. And then for the spirit to come along and to give you the ability to live in light of your properly ordered love. That's it. And so then he gives us his general rule in all such matters. He says, so whether you eat or drink, and notice this now, because this is very practical for us, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now think about that for a minute, because that just gets down to the nitty gritty of all of our lives every single day. Because I mean, if you're looking for sort of a general rule of thumb, should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I say this? Should I not say this? Should I you know, go here? Should I not go here? Well, then ask this question. I think it's a good one. Will this bring God glory or not? It's very much like, what's best for the gospel? It's the same question, just asked differently, really. So if I say this, is God glorified in this? Does this reflect a properly ordered love that says Christ and His kingdom is more valuable in this life and in the next than absolutely anything else and nothing even comes close and I'm all about His mission? Does it say that? Does it reflect that or not? That cuts through a lot of stuff really, really helpful. And so then he concludes with this. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And then he says, just as I try. Now, this is an exhausting thought to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. And again, to what end? That they may be saved which requires properly ordered love and a lot of spirit-empowered self-control. And so then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, who for the prize set before him forsook all of heaven and all of its benefits to enter into this world, just think it through, and not even for a crown of celery, but to wear a crown of thorns. And then, in my place and in yours, to purchase us out of sin and death and to secure that eternal future for us that I talked about earlier, he endured suffering and death as a criminal on a Roman cross. Why? That he might gain the prize, but what's the prize? Okay, it's the new heavens, it's the new earth, but man, what he's really excited about is the new heavens and the new earth with you. We're the prize. It's an astonishing thought. We're the prize of the Lord. And really sort of the underlying question of the whole of this is, is he our prize? So questions and I'm done. Who or what is your greatest love? Like, what prize are you living for? As you look at the way you use your time and your money and all the things that you fret over in the middle of the night, all of that stuff, what is your driving passion? What is moving you through life? What are you thinking about all of the time and strategically aligning your life and making everything and everyone around you sort of bow down to as you pursue it? What is it? Because it might be a crown of celery in the end, as wonderful as it may otherwise be. And if it's not Christ and his eternal kingdom, then it's disordered love. It's it's disordered love. And what does disordered love and idolatry bring? It it brings death. And Paul's like, hey, no surprises. I'm going to let you know on the front end. Man, don't learn that by example. Learn it from those people who wandered around. Secondly, where are you lacking in self-control in your pursuit of Christ and his kingdom? What's tempting you? What draws you away? What are the other prizes, the other crowns, the other loves, the other passions, the other desires that's pulling you away? And and what, what are you doing to address those things, to work on those things, to discipline your body, if you will, so that you might run purposefully and box purposefully and chase purposefully after that which actually matters. All right, last question. What are you doing to cultivate the work of God's Spirit in your life? And I feel like I'm just sort of beating the same drum all the time because I talk about personal worship all the time and corporate worship and getting involved in Christian community and figuring out how God has wired you to serve Him with all that you are and all that you do. And and then doing it. That's because that's how you grow in a relationship with Christ. Those are the means by which He has given us that His Spirit comes along and participates in our lives to give us a heart like the Lord, a heart like Paul. To make us purposeful. To help us gain the prize. So what are you doing to cultivate the work of God's Spirit in your life? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. And then what's the last one? Self-control. Self-control. So it's on the table. Paul says, hey, enjoy it. Have fun with it came from God, it's His gift to you, it's wonderful, but it's not the most important thing. Christ and His kingdom is the most important thing. And here's what you need to do, cultivate a relationship with Him in which you will grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and in the self-control necessary to maintain that priority and to live accordingly. Those are not bad qualities. So those are God's gift to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this man, Paul, that you raised up to raise up so many followers of you. We write so many letters to communicate so much of your word, not just in his day, but in our day. We thank you for the way that he carefully teaches us about life in you. And we thank you for the way that he himself illustrates his very teaching by means of his own life, all that he sacrificed, including his life in the end, all chasing after the prize that is, in fact, the true prize. And so, Lord, we pray that you might set our eyes and our hearts on the true prize that we might greatly love and more greatly than anything else, Christ Christ and his kingdom that we might discipline ourselves far better than any athlete for we chase a greater crown that we might indeed run in such a way as to obtain it and fight in such a way as to gain it for ourselves in the end to your glory we pray all these things in jesus name amen